You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric Desobe here, excited to be joined by 2017 NLC Detroit fellow Rita Taleb is here. Excited to hear all the things that she's working on in that part of the country. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get to it. All right, Rita, what do most people who live in progressive blue states like California and out here near the beach in L.A., what do most people misunderstand about Detroit? I think that a lot of people have a variety of misconceptions about Detroit. I would say one of the ones that come to mind is that we're this, you know, ghetto, desolate, crime ridden, um, abandoned homes and um, we should just completely be forgotten about. It's just this horrible, horrible, evil place um, that nobody wants to come to. And for the natives that are here, they, they're ashamed of their city. Um, and I think those negative stereotypes are due in part because of the media. Um, and in part, I'll, I'll hold folks accountable to individual culpability. I think that some people you know, become too comfortable or lazy and don't take the time to research Detroit and uh, perhaps come down here and see for themselves how the revitalization efforts that are taking, you know, place on the ground is starting to trickle into the neighborhoods. And we're really seeing a resurgence of what Detroit once was, right? I mean, Detroit at one point was a renaissance city. Um, and so we're, we're seeing a comeback in that regard But in another way, as uh, Marcus Leminis put it when he was just here for Detroit Startup Week, you know, Detroit has never left or gone anywhere. So we're still here. You know, we we may have been in survival mode or existing, but nonetheless, we were here and we're just coming back now in a stronger way. And we have a lot of things to say. And then I think one of the reasons there's a lot of exciting things happening there is folks are are starting different organizations, different companies. And that's, that's true for you. Tell me a little bit about your founding experience. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. Um, there's so much around the Detroit entrepreneurial ecosystem right now. Um, I recently had a workshop in Detroit Startup Week. I was honored to be selected as um, it's a competitive process. And my company, Dreamcatcher Innovations LLC, I launched that um, a few months after finishing my fellowship. It's really just the synergy of all the things that I love to do and that I think I'm great at doing. And it's my way of showing up um, for the world and for the people that I want to serve. Um, so it's my ability to really wear, wear four hats. I, I like to call myself as a visionary connector, storyteller, and advocate. And I'm, I'm finally in a space in my life where I feel comfortable um, spontaneously throughout the day going through each and every one of those roles. And it really allows me to show up creatively, academically, um, legally for people who need my assistance. So being of service in that way um, really helps me feel that I'm in alignment with my purpose and what I was called here to do. And then is that your full-time job right now, or do you hope it will become one down the road? How do you kind of split your time professionally? So it is my full-time job. Um, I'm officially a consultant and I serve my clients from across the country. Um, And I hope that down the road, I'd like to become licensed. So that's the goal when it comes to um, getting my my license so that I can go ahead and serve my clients in a different capacity as well. And I'd like to transition into um, writing business transactions and contracts for my clients. It seems like the natural progression of where my company would go. Um, and so I would certainly like to incorporate my legal background 
um, in a way where licensed attorneys can do so, so that I can help them um, and serve them in that way as well. And then do you find the clients right now or they find you and and what kind of services do they want you to perform when they uh, come in contact with you? So it's really incredible how things work. Um, And I think this is an indicator of knowing that you're at the right place and right time and doing the right thing in your life. When I launched, I really just kind of took this huge leap of faith and jumped off the cliff, as they say. Um, I didn't have a business plan written up. I didn't have a blueprint on how I should do it. I just dived right in and people found me. Um, I had a number of serendipitous moments that happened where things just kind of aligned. And by word of mouth, my clientele has expanded from the Midwest all the way down to the South, now to the West Coast and the East Coast. And so, you know, I also am a part of a large networking group of young professionals. And but I would say the biggest way that they find me is by just referrals um, and people really appreciating the way that I show up for them and how I can help them. Um, So a lot of my clients come to me for grant writing. Um, There's some incredible work being done here in Detroit to to help, for instance, incarcerated juveniles. And one of my clients runs an incredible nonprofit here um, called Caught Up. Um, Another another one of my clients um, does incredible um, after-school mentoring work and some of the the harder hit areas in Detroit um, and some of my other clients, you know, as, as I do career coaching as well, I was able to help them, you know, launch their photography business or opening up their massage and healing spa. Um, so really, I would say a diverse group of people seem to be comfortable with me um, providing a blueprint for them. And so it's been a combination of just kind of taking that leap of faith and putting myself out there in the universe, people finding me, and then from their word of mouth. And then social media has also helped um, help me make a presence and, you know, certainly presenting at workshops such as Detroit Startup Week and being a part of a large professional network like NLC has also helped me as well. So I'm grateful for those platforms. And then what would you say the hardest part of founding a company is? So for me, I would say the hardest part for me was mentally getting over the idea that it's not my birthright to do it. Um, I'm the first founder um, and CEO of my own company. Um, I was the first to go to college, the first to go to law school. And so kind of blazing a trail and just mentally coming coming to terms with the fact that, you know, it wasn't going to be easy for me. My life hasn't been easy for me. And just really summoning up the courage to know that, you know, I have a lot of wonderful, unique solutions to problems that people face. And so mentally just understanding um, that that it's my birthright to do that, to show up in the world the way I want to, um, and then cultivating um, a sense of understanding and self-awareness that helps me show up in, in the spaces that I show up um, in order for me to be of service. Um, I, I haven't had any roadblocks as far as, <clears throat> you know, money-wise or resources. Detroit, you know, is hot right now in the grant grant scene, especially for women of color and the, the STEM topic is something that's certainly very popular right now. And a lot of my clients that I write grants for are jumping on that bandwagon. And so we're able to successfully get them grants immediately. Um, And so for me, I would say the biggest obstacle was just mentally understanding that I could do this and summoning up the courage to do it. And then 
finding the right mentors and developing a tribe of folks who are going to keep me and hold me accountable um, to the way that I've told them I want to show up in the world and the legacy that I hope to leave. Yeah, that sounds great. When we come back after the break, we'll talk a little bit more about founding life and also a little bit more about Detroit. Thanks for listening to The Zag. We'll be right back. Rita, were you born and raised in Detroit or did you end up there a little bit later in your life? So I was born and raised in East Dearborn. Um, my parents flocked here, leaving the Civil War in Lebanon um, in the 70s. And I'm the youngest of eight children. I was uh, raised by a single mom. And my, fa- my father was incarcerated my whole life. Um, and so, you know, for those listening who are not familiar with um, the geography of it, uh, Dearborn is one of the first uh, suburbs that you will come across once you exit Detroit. Um, and so there's a lot of um, history here in Dearborn. And um, so growing up in a sort of in an incubator, like a vacuum, a city where everybody looks like you, talks like you, <laughs> eats the same food as you and um, going to a high school where, you know, over 90 percent of the people I graduated with had the same cultural and religious background as me. I found that I overgrew the city um, at a very young age, actually, and I, I just really had this innate, deep desire to, 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 to question, you know, what else was out there in the world, and to really want to see what else was available to me. How else can I, you know, understand who I am? And again, just this theme of wanting to authentically show up as who I am, and and not take on this title of, um, you know perhaps some of the adversity I faced um, with how my how my family had to overcome certain things and just really wanting to pave the path from path for myself. Um, and so while it was an extremely um, gratifying and rewarding in many ways as far as you know having a pathway culturally and religiously and then seeing that role modeled in a number of people around me, um, it was gratifying in that way but I found it to be lacking. And for me, I always knew that I needed more. And so, you know, a lot of people who grow, grow up in the suburbs of Detroit, you know, they really don't like this idea of, oh my God, you know, you hang out in Detroit, like, oh wow, that's a bad place to be. (laughs) And so there was this stigma always attached to Detroit and don't go there. Or like, if you did go there, it was just pockets of neighborhoods that you could go to, but then you had to quickly get in your car and lock the doors and hurry down the freeway and come back home to your suburban life. Um, And for me, I just didn't have that experience. Uh, And so um, I found myself really not necessarily being ostracized, but again, just kind of uniquely engaging Detroit um, in a way that a lot of people from my community in my 20s um, didn't have the courage to do. And some just didn't want to. They were very comfortable in their homes and in their suburban life and and didn't want to expand their horizon beyond that. And because you've had so many firsts, like you mentioned, firsts in your family to, to graduate college, you law school, found a company. I'm sure there's folks now who see you as a mentor, a role model of sorts, and ask you for different kinds of advice. So when you do interact with folks who maybe have a s- similar uh, situation where they may be the first in their family to do something uh, related to college or, or starting a business, what is the advice you find that you give to those people the most often? 
Yeah, you know, I've I've worn that mentorship hat my whole life, even though I am the youngest. Um, I, I do take care of <laughs> I do take care of my mom and and an, an older sister um, and her health, and so there's kind of been that role reversal where um, you know the parent is sort of this this child who's dependent on the child who is this parent, um, and and that could be tricky at times. Um, but for those who who look at me as a mentor, um, I really stress the importance of finding out what it is that you are just born gifted with, you know, and, and if you can't think of that, then make it your job to know what it is. Intentionally seek out experiences that are uncomfortable because whatever it is that you are fearful about doing, you know, fear is not a bad thing. Fear is our friend. You know, it, it takes us and it takes us to a place within ourselves um, that maybe gives us a physical aversion or that, that anxious feeling in the pit of your stomach. And it's, it's really giving you clues along the way because the feeling you're getting when you, when you feel that fear is like, I'm not adequate. I'm not good enough. I can't do this. You know, this is beyond the scope of, of, of what I can accomplish. But if you really toil within yourself, um, and, and struggle to understand why you're feeling that way and then pursue that, you'll see that it's leading you to the, the greatest potential, you know, and to manifesting the best person you can be. And, and I think only when you have the courage to really do that and take the time to be introspective, can you serve the clients or the people in your family or your community? And then on a broader scale, it's the way that you can serve the world and show up for people. Um, and, and that's where healing takes place, really. And then last thing, you'll be in Houston this, uh, I guess not even this summer. It's the summer's already here. So next month in uh, Houston for the NLC convention, give us a, a short sneak peek of what your Spark Talk will be about. So my Spark Talk will be about cultivating narratives, the importance of powerful, powerful storytelling to secure grant funding and then policy initiatives that we can align to those grants um, in order to help change in communities that need it. You know, uh, Hurricane Harvey comes to mind when I think of that. It's just a shame to see how communities, um, you know, didn't get, didn't have the funding they need and how some people were still displaced and couldn't return home um, just because on a federal level, there's some um, grants that were given and agencies, you know, most of the time have contingencies and conditions um, and limitations on how that money is spent. And so I think that we as progressives, especially in the NLC family, made me well aware of how we can utilize this innately human quality, right? All of us tell stories and, and it's the one thing that we've been doing since humanity existed. Um, and so if we can utilize that and go back to the basics and the essence of who we are, um, then we can craft powerful stories that tell really what the local community needs. And we need to build bridges with policy people and help them understand, you know, be their eyes and their ears, so to speak, on what's happening on the streets. And we need to be intentional about, you know, keeping our metrics in place, keeping and collecting data and keeping qualitative data, such as storytelling and testimonies of how people have been hurt um, by natural disasters, for instance, going back to Hurricane Harvey. And I think that having that data in place is incredibly important in order for us to um, get that money that we need in order to help heal our communities. So I'm excited to present that and bring a wealth of knowledge and drop some gems and help people really um, alleviate some of the pain and suffering that their communities are facing. Great. Well, we're excited to, to hear it. I'm excited to meet you in person in a couple of weeks when I see you in Houston. And thanks to everyone for listening to this episode of The Zag. You can find all past episodes in the iTunes store, in the new Google Podcast app, Stitcher, 
Spotify, SoundCloud. We're just about everywhere and up to almost 80 episodes. So lots to choose from in terms of awesome progressives doing cool things across the country. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.